Well, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, looking at verses 13 through 17, and continuing to deal with the subject of justification sola fide, which means by faith alone. There are a significant number of theologians out there who think either that we in the Protestant Reformed tradition have misinterpreted Paul, or else that Paul misinterpreted first century Judaism. They claim that first century Judaism was not the legalistic, pharisaic, works-oriented religion that it is so often made out to be. Now, only a few of these guys are, are so arrogant as to accuse Paul a first century Jew, of misunderstanding first century Judaism. More often, the accusation is made against us, uh, who have a classical Protestant understanding of Paul. The problem arose, they say, when the Reformers read Paul's writings and they interpreted Paul's opponents, his Jewish opponents, as if they were 16th century Roman Catholic cardinals. In other words, they will say that the Reformers and those who came after were guilty of reading their own 16th century crisis into a 1st century context. This is called the New Perspective on Paul, and it's propounded by such guys as E.P. Sanders and James Dunn and N.T. Wright, among others, and they claim that classical Protestantism has gotten 1st century Judaism all wrong. We've misunderstood it this whole time. And they'll say we've got it wrong on three major counts. First, they'll say first century Judaism was not a religion based upon works righteousness, but rather it was based upon covenant inclusion. No first century Jew, they say, would have thought that they were performing religious works and accumulating merit that they could then cash in for eternal life. Rather, what really mattered to them was whether or not you were included in the covenant, which happened by being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses. They'll also say that first century Judaism was at its root a a religion of grace. They believed that they were born Jewish by the grace of God, that they'd been given circumcision and the law by the grace of God, and that they were forgiven of their sins through the sacrifices, particularly the sacrifice offered on the Day of Atonement by the grace of God. It wasn't a works-based religion. It was a grace-based religion. And finally, they will say that first century Judaism believed that as long as you were faithful to the covenant, doing your best to keep, keep God's law and trusting in God's mercy for your shortcomings, that you remained a member of the covenant and you would enter into the everlasting kingdom. Therefore, they say, because classical Protestantism has misunderstood first century Judaism, we've also misunderstood Paul. And so they'll say that Paul was concerned with corporate identity more than individual salvation. The question Paul addressed was not, how can a sinner be made right in the sight of a just and holy God, but who are the people of God? They'll say that the works of the law, which Paul so often preaches against in Romans and Galatians and in other places, 
are not to be interpreted as every attempt or any attempt to achieve righteousness and earn God's favor, but rather that phrase, works of the law, refers specifically to those identity markers which demonstrated that somebody was a part of God's covenant people, namely circumcision and the law and and, uh, the dietary codes. In Christ, then... All of those old covenant identity markers are abolished, and in their place, new identity markers have been instituted. Now baptism and the Lord's Supper instead of circumcision and Passover. And now these these identity markers are available to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, not just the Jews. And that's primarily what Paul is concerned with. And then finally, they will say that faith is not to be understood as, as bare trust in Christ and his righteousness, but is better understood and better translated as faithfulness to Christ and his new covenant. In other words, they'll say that the way you get into the covenant is through faith and those new covenant badges of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the way you stay in the covenant is by living faithfully to the Lord of the covenant. On the last day, then, the Christian will be acquitted not on the basis of faith in Christ, but on the basis of his faithfulness to Christ. Now, there are some good things that this this new perspective has brought, and and they can be helpful in, in correcting our understanding of Scripture on a couple of points. For example, they provide us with a good reminder that We shouldn't read the Bible through 16th century lenses or 21st century lenses. First century Jews and 16th century Catholics are not one and the same. Okay, Point taken. That is a good point. They also provide a helpful corrective to what has become an overly individualized view of salvation where the only thing that really matters is me and my personal relationship with Jesus. They're helping us recover what is a definite corporate element in the New Testament. But I have some real concerns about this so-called new perspective on Paul, which is so fashionable in academic circles. I think it fails on a number of counts. Their claim that first century Judaism was not a merit-based religion of self-righteousness is dubious at best, and I don't think it's borne out by Scripture. Now clearly there were Old Testament believers like Abraham, for instance, who were justified by faith alone in God's promise. But the Gospels, think back to our year we spent walking through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospels present a Jesus who is trying to wrest first century Judaism away from the legalistic grip of the Pharisees and return it to the faith of the patriarchs and the prophets, a faith which was ultimately fulfilled in him. Corporate identity and individual salvation are not at odds with one another. In other words, the question, who are the people of God, presupposes an earlier question, namely, how can I be made right with God so that I can become a part of his people? The covenant community, the church, is made up of individual believers who are in covenant with Christ. Thirdly, works of the law, that that phrase that recurs over and over and over again in Romans, works of the law cannot be confined to those Jewish identity markers such as circumcision and Sabbath keeping and the kosher laws. If that were the case, then 
why would Paul place works of the law in an antithetical relationship to grace? I mean, think back to Romans 4, 4, and 5, where the alternative to works and wages is not working, believing, and gift. In other words, works of the law means for Paul any works performed in the pursuit of merit before God. You think back to the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't asking about works of the law like circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and kosher laws. He did all of those things, and he still knew he wasn't right before God. And so he wants something else. He wants another work that he can perform for God that he can then turn around and cash in for eternal life. Finally, making our faithfulness to Christ the grounds of our final justification. And these guys will affirm that there are actually two justifications. There's a present justification, and there is a future justification. This whole conception means that in the final analysis, a person is justified by their own righteousness rather than by the righteousness of Christ imputed to them by faith. They'll say that even though our faithfulness is enabled by grace and empowered by the Spirit, yet in the end we contribute to our own salvation and our boasting is not excluded. And for Paul, that's a big problem. Now, the reason I begin this morning with what is predominantly an academic debate is really for two reasons. I would argue that it's not just an academic debate. I would argue that similar views are being propounded by the theological faculty at Southwest Baptist University. If you wondered, I've never addressed this, but if you wondered why uh, over Christmas I entered into that fray, it was because this kind of stuff is being taught there. It was taught there when I was a student. It's still being taught there, and it's dangerous. And it's dangerous because... It's so subtly close to what Paul is actually saying. I think the new perspective on Paul is really an old perspective that all too easily creeps into the church. Although the new perspective guys are trying to distinguish between 1st century Judaism and 16th century Catholicism, in my opinion, their reconstruction of 1st century Judaism actually bears a lot of resemblance to the Catholicism of every age. For that matter, it bears a lot of resemblance to, to Protestant churches in those areas where Protestantism is the dominant cultural force, places like the Bible Belt. It's de-emphasis on the need for personal conversion and its elevation of inclusion in the covenant community through both faith and the sacraments as the basis of a right relationship with God along with its redefining of justification by faith in Christ as justification by faithfulness to Christ forms the foundation of a brand of Christianity which is so prevalent in every age and is prevalent today. And it says this, As long as I belong to the church and do my best to live the Christian life, I'm going to be okay. I'll inherit eternal life. Now, I'm not saying that's what they're, they're proposing. 
I'm saying that's the effect of what they're proposing. When you blur the doctrine of justification by faith alone, it has devastating consequences down the way. Theology is like archery. Okay? When you, when you have the, the arrow on the bowstring, if you're off by just the slightest degree and you let it go, you're going to miss by a mile downfield. And that's what's happened here. The problem lies in the definition of justification. And if we're going to get the gospel right, we've got to get justification right. And that's why Paul belabors the point. And that's why we're belaboring the point in Romans chapter 4. If we identify the grounds of justification in our own faithfulness, our own righteousness rather than in the faithfulness and the righteousness of Christ received by faith, the consequences are horrendous. Now some of you may be asking, does it really matter? It seems like we're splitting hairs. I mean, in the end, the result is the same, isn't it? Right? Both views affirm the necessity of faith, the importance of the sacraments, the importance of the church, the importance of good works. What's the big deal? The big deal is this. I want you to listen to me very closely. Paul asserts in this passage and in others that unless you consciously forsake your own faithfulness, your own righteousness as the means by which you're made right with God, and in its place, Embrace Christ's faithfulness and Christ's righteousness as the sole grounds of your justification, then you're not justified. The devil's truly in the details, isn't he? Such a subtle distinction and yet an eternity of difference. Now, Romans 4 deals with this very issue, particularly the antithetical relationship between faith and works in the justification of sinners. And it does so by using the example of Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. Now Paul chose Abraham because his purpose is to prove that God has only ever justified sinners by faith alone apart from works. But before we turn to Romans 4 and continue our our exploration of justification by faith alone, I want you first to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. It's just about four or five books further to the right in your New Testament. In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to find Paul's own testimony of the way that he thought as a first century Jew before his conversion and the way that he thought as a Christian after his conversion with relationship to his works. Philippians chapter 3 verse 4, Paul says this, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he's going to run through his his Jewish resume. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want you to know what Paul's doing here. He, he's thinking of his life in terms of a, a ledger with a gain column and a loss column, a profit and a debit column. In the gain column, he says, I used to place all of my human achievements circumcised on the eighth day, born to the nation of Israel, to the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. In his pre-converted state, Paul had all of those things in the gain column. These are the reasons why God should accept me. But I want you to notice that those gains could just as easily have been of a Protestant variety. You remember a couple of weeks ago when I shared the testimony of John Wesley? What would John Wesley have written? What would he have put in his gain column? Born the son of a pastor, raised in church, educated at Oxford, ordained to the Anglican ministry, preaching in, in prisons and in mines and in churches, becoming a missionary to Georgia, to go reach the heathen Indians for, for Christ. And yet, Paul was not justified by any of his righteous works, and neither was Wesley justified by any of his. None of those things that they thought were gain, none of those things that they thought accounted them as righteous in the sight of Christ, accounted for anything. The point is, all forms of self-righteousness by which we think that we can be acceptable and justified in God's sight, amount to nothing. Paul was not justified before God when he had all of those achievements in his gain column. Not until he met Christ on the road to Damascus. Not until he was physically blinded and given spiritual sight. Not until he saw that all of those religious and righteous attainments were not actually gain at all, but rather were loss. Why? Because they were not of grace. They did not proceed from faith, and they did not exclude boasting. So what did Paul do? What did Paul do when his eyes were opened and he saw the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ shining in all of his righteousness like the noonday sun? Suddenly he saw that all of his supposedly righteous achievements were nothing but rubbish. That word there, rubbish, it means filth, dung, refuse. That's what our righteous acts are when they're compared to the, the glory and the grace and the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. And so Paul did what he knew he had to do. He took all of those things that he had put in the gain column and he transferred them over into the loss column. Until he had suffered the loss of all of those things, 
he would not be counted righteous in the sight of God. For his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He wasn't going to gain Christ until he emptied his gain column and put it in the loss column. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Until he suffered the loss of all of his own claims to righteousness, could he receive the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Paul had to forsake his own righteousness in order to receive the righteousness of Jesus. And so must every one of us. That's the point of Romans chapter 4. Justification does not come by belonging to the church through baptism any more than it came by belonging to Israel through circumcision. It doesn't matter which works of the law you speak of. If you rely upon them for your justification, you are not justified. Not all Israel is Israel, Paul says in Romans 9.6, and not all church is the church. So the question is not fundamentally, are you a part of the covenant community? Do you belong to the church? The question is not fundamentally, are you living in faithfulness to Christ? Those are important questions, but they're not fundamental questions. In justification, which is the question, how can I, a sinner, be made right in the sight of a holy God? The only question that matters is, are you relying upon your own righteousness, what Paul calls the works of the law, or upon the righteousness of Christ? So today's passage continues Paul's defense of justification by faith alone by using the example of Abraham. So far in Romans 4, Paul has established that Abraham was not justified by his works, verses 1 to 8. He wasn't justified by his circumcision, verses 9 to 12. Now he's intent on us seeing that neither was Abraham justified by the law, verses 13 to 17. The main point of this passage and the main point of this morning comes in verse 13. Look there with me. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now this, of course, runs counter to the prevailing opinion of the first century Judaism, namely that Abraham's faithfulness to the law, his righteousness, was what secured God's blessing. We're going to see momentarily how Paul argues for this truth, that it wasn't by his faithfulness or obedience to the law. It was through the righteousness of faith. But first, I want us to ask what the promise is. What's the promise that Paul speaks of? Paul says this promise doesn't come to Abraham or to his offspring by the works of the law, but through the righteousness of faith. What promise is he talking about? Well, Paul identifies the promise made to Abraham and his descendants as being that he would be heir of the world. He was going to inherit the world. What does Paul have in mind here? Well, Paul does not have one particular verse in mind. Rather, he's thinking of the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, which was progressively revealed throughout the Old Testament and throughout Abraham's own life. First, Abraham was promised that God would make of him a great nation, and through him... He would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. First words that God ever spoke to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, 
He said, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, then as time went on, God promised that he would make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the dust of the ground, Genesis 13, 16. And that this offspring, these descendants, would come from Abraham's own body, though he was very old and his wife Sarah was barren. Genesis 15, verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, namely Ishmael, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Alright, so now God's promised that he's going to make Abraham the father of a multitude. He says, kings and nations will come forth from you. Genesis 17, 4-6. Furthermore, God promised Abraham that he would have an inheritance, not only of descendants, but an inheritance of land. Genesis 13, 14. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I'm going to give to you and to your offspring forever. Genesis 17.8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, even all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So a people and a place are promised to Abraham. But even in Genesis, it's clear that God's promise encompassed more than just that narrow strip of land called Canaan. How else was Abraham going to become God's medium of blessing to all the families of the earth unless Abraham was ultimately going to inherit the earth? Genesis twenty two seventeen. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This promise is expansive. It's encompassing the whole globe. So throughout the unfolding revelation of the Old Testament, that promise of an inheritance to Abraham It came to encompass the entire world. That's the way the prophets understood it. In other words, the promise that Paul speaks of here is the messianic, eschatological, which means end times, ultimate, promise of a new heaven and a new earth, which would be given to Abraham and to his offspring and to none other. It's the same thing that Jesus promised in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the same promise. It's the Abrahamic promise, the blessing promised to Abraham and to his descendants of an inheritance of everlasting life and joy in the presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what it means that God promised Abraham that he would inherit the world. Now, two questions need to be answered then. To whom is this inheritance promised, and how do they receive it? And the first question is going to be answered as we deal with the second. Paul says in verse 13 that this promise did not come to Abraham and to his offspring through the law, but only through the righteousness of faith. Now Paul Paul could prove this chronologically. That's what he does in Galatians chapter 3. 
when he demonstrates that the promise to Abraham was given 430 years before the law was given to Moses. Therefore, the promise could not have come through the law. But that's not the way he argues here. And, and I suspect it's because he wants to establish that the promise, it's not just that the promise doesn't come through the law of Moses. The promise doesn't come through works of any kind. That's what he's arguing in Romans 4. Paul is not just attacking Jewish self-righteousness. He's attacking all self-righteousness. That's why throughout Romans, Paul usually doesn't speak of the law of Moses in particular, but of law generally, whether it be the law of creation, Romans 1, the law of conscience, Romans 2, the law of command, Romans 5. No matter which law one is under, you can't be justified by doing it. That's Paul's point. So rather than arguing chronologically as he did in Galatians 3, Paul argues categorically. He says this, law and faith exist in two totally separate categories. They're as distinct as wages and gift, merit and grace. So when Paul says that the promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, he's saying that Abraham did not become heir of the world by working, or by doing, or by faithfulness, or by obedience, or by self-righteousness. Abraham became the heir of the world by the righteousness of faith, the free and gracious justification of God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if Abraham became the heir of the world through the righteousness of faith, then so must his offspring. And Paul proves this in three ways. First, he says, Abraham and his offspring could not have received the promise through the law because the law can only bring wrath. Only faith can brings the blessing. That's Paul's point in verses 14 and 15. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So the first reason Paul gives as to why the promise that you'll be the heir of the world cannot come through the law is because if that were true, then faith would be made null. It would Literally, it would be emptied. And the promise would be made void. Literally, it would be destroyed. Why? Well, I mean, why would that be? Well, it could be that Paul is arguing from the essential meaning of the words faith and promise. As he's already demonstrated up in verses 4 and 5, work and wages and law have nothing whatsoever to do with faith and gift and promise. They exist in two totally separate, contradictory categories. A promise cannot come through the law because the law and promise are are, are completely mutually exclusive. They're separate. The inheritance can come either through faith, gift, promise, or work, wages, and law, but it cannot come through both. That could be what he's saying here. Another possible way of looking at Paul's meaning is, is that granted what Paul has labored to express and establish in Romans 1-3, to namely that all people everywhere, in all places, and at all times are sinners who have broken the law, whether they have that law through creation and conscience, the Gentile, 
or through commandment, the Jews. If the inheritance came through the law, because all have broken the law, God would have no heirs. That's what some commentators think, like Doug Moo, who said, if it be the case that the inheritance is to be based on adherence to the law, then there would be no heirs, because no fallen human being can adequately adhere to the law. And that means faith is exercised in vain, and the promise would never be fulfilled. But regardless of what, what Paul has in mind, in verse 15 he explains that the reason the inheritance cannot come through the law is because in the case of sinners, the law can only bring wrath. It can't ever bring blessing. The law can only bring an inheritance to those who measure up to its standard. The law says, obey and you'll be blessed. But what happens if you disobey? It can't bridge that gap. The law can only bring an inheritance to those who measure up, or it can pronounce judgment on those who don't, but it can't make those who don't measure up as if they measured up. That's not the function of the law. It doesn't have that power. And so when sinners come face to face with the law, there's no hope of an inheritance. If the law says, obey and you'll inherit the world, and I'm a a, a disobedient sinner, I can't inherit the world. The inheritance can't come to a sinner like me through the law. The law can only reveal whether I've achieved the standard of righteousness or how far short of that standard I've fallen. But it has no power whatsoever to actually make me righteous. In fact, Paul says, the law actually turns sin into transgression. It takes that inward nature of sin and rebelliousness, it gives it a command, and what does rebelliousness do with a command? It disobeys it. And it turns that sin into an actual transgression of God's law. So the reason the law brings wrath then is because when it reveals God's righteous commands to sinners, they become transgressors of those commands. So here's what Paul says first. The reason why the promise came to Abraham and his offspring through the righteousness of faith and not through the law is because the law can only bring wrath when it comes to sinners. Faith, however, brings blessing because it lays hold of and receives the righteousness of Christ who did obey the law and who did receive the inheritance. Second reason he gives Abraham and his offspring could not have received the promise through the law because the law rests upon merit while faith rests upon grace. And God has clearly revealed that his inheritance is a gift of his free and sovereign grace. That's what it means in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. You know, Paul's arguing here as he does a number of times from the absolute foundation of grace. It was just a given for Paul that God relates to man on the basis of grace, not on the basis of merit. That God relates to man on the basis of grace and not obligation or not debt is foundational to all of Paul's theology. He's going to argue, in fact, in Romans chapter 11 for the unconditional election of a redeemed remnant In this very same way, in Romans 11, he says this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Of course they have to be chosen by grace. 
If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. But, but why is this principle, namely that God relates to man by grace and not merit, so foundational that Paul thinks he can take it for granted in his argument? I think we see glimpses of his thought a little bit later on in Romans 11. Remember where he ends that section by saying, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things and to him belongs the glory forever and ever. God for Paul, is so inconceivably above man that there's no conceivable way in which man could work for God and thus put God in his debt or obligate God in some way. Let me give you an example. Did you come to church this morning? Of course, well, we're here. Great. Why did you come? How did you come? You came in the final analysis because God put it into your mind to do so. And he providentially governed your circumstances to see to it that it happened. There's a reason why you didn't oversleep your alarm. There's a reason why your car started this morning. There's a reason why you didn't have a wreck on the way to church this morning. God ordained that you be here. You being here is God's work in the final analysis. The fact that you even woke up this morning with life and breath in your lungs is by the sheer determination of God's sovereign will. Therefore, what work have we ever performed for God which in the final analysis, God was not actually performing for Himself through us? That's what He means when He says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Who has ever given to the Lord that he might be repaid? The clearest statement of this is in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you've ever worked for God, it's because God was willing and working in you to do so. Therefore, to whom belongs the glory? He does. There is no merit. God must relate to man on the basis of grace, for man can accumulate no independent merit before God, which God has not himself supplied. From that foundation, then, it's a single step to argue that works, they don't cohere with grace. Works cohere with merit. Only faith coheres with grace. Works earn a payment. Faith receives a gift. That is why Paul says it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest upon grace. Finally, Abraham and his offspring become heirs of the world, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, because the law is exclusive, while faith is universal. Keep looking at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, that is the Jew, 
but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Real quickly, Paul's third argument goes something like this. Let me summarize it. If the inherited blessing, the promise, you'll become the heir of the world, came through the law, then only those who had the law, and I think here he's referring specifically to the law of Moses, so in other words, the Jews, could possibly perform the works of the law necessary to receive the inheritance. But God didn't promise Abraham that he would be the father of the Jews only. His covenant promise said, Abraham, I've made you the father of many nations. Therefore, if Abraham is to be the father of many nations, if many nations are going to become his offspring and inherit the world with him and receive the promise, that promise cannot come through the righteousness of the law. It can only come through the righteousness of faith. Therefore, if you would be an offspring of Abraham, if you would inherit the world, it's not going to be through works of the law. It's only going to be through the righteousness of faith. If you would inherit eternity, everlasting life and joy and peace in the presence of your God and Father and Christ Jesus your Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, it's not going to be by working for God. It's going to be by believing God. But what kind of faith receives the righteousness of God? We were talking about this in our Connect group this morning. I mean, what about those people who say, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, and their lives bear absolutely no resemblance to any sort of following of Christ? Are they justified simply by believing in God? Is that what Paul is saying? No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if you would be justified by faith like Abraham was, you need to have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Raises the question, what kind of faith did Abraham have? Because that same kind of faith, that same quality of faith, true saving faith, must be shared by anyone who would receive Abraham's inheritance. So we see in verse 17, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence those things which do not exist. We're going to come back to verse 17 next week when we conclude our study of justification by faith alone, but I'm going to touch on it this week. What kind of faith justifies? What kind of faith did Abraham demonstrate such that God counted him as righteous. It was a faith, Paul says, that trusted in God's power to raise the dead and to create an offspring out of nothing. Abraham was 70 years old, 70 years old, when God made him the promise that he would have a son. Abraham was 99 years old when God made that promise in Genesis 17 That Abraham was going to be the father of not just a son, but many nations. 29 years elapsed between the promise of a son and the actual fulfillment of that promise coming. Not only that, Sarah was decades 
past the age of childbearing, and she was barren at that. Yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of all that he could see, in spite of all that human ability could achieve, Abraham believed that God could and would bring forth life from Sarah's dead womb. He believed that the same God who called the universe into existence by the power of his authoritative sovereign word could call forth a multiple or multitude of nations out of his own aged loins. He believed in the sovereign omnipotent power of God to bless him just as he had promised in spite of all evidence to the contrary. That's true justifying faith. And if you would be justified and become an heir of the world, you must share that same kind of faith. You must believe that God raises the dead, that he raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead, and that one day he will raise your body from the grave and bring you into an everlasting inheritance. You need to believe that God will call into being a new heaven and a new earth which does not now exist a place prepared for your everlasting joy. You need to believe that God is as good and as gracious as he claims to be and that he is powerful to save you from your sins through the blood and the righteousness of his son. You need to believe God, not just believe in God. That is, that he exists and that Jesus was real and that Jesus died. You need to believe not just in God, you need to believe God. You need to believe that he is both willing and able to keep his promises. If you would be justified this morning and become an heir of the world, then you need to pray something like this from the depths of your heart. Would you pray with me? Oh God of Abraham, I believe your promise. I believe your mercy. I trust your grace. I believe that you raised up Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. And I believe that you will one day raise my body from the grave. And that you will bring me into a new creation which you will call forth out of nothing. I believe that you will take away my sin and that you will give me Christ's very own righteousness. I believe. And so I cry to you now in faith, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, save me. Justify me. Renew me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If you would pray that in faith this morning from the depths of your heart, God will speak Genesis 15, 6 over your life as well. That you believed God and he counted it to you for righteousness. He justified you. He included you in his promised inheritance. And one day, 
He's going to raise you from the grave and He's going to bring you into a new heaven and a new earth which He will create by the word of His power. And He will grant you to live forever in everlasting joy and peace and love and happiness, ever-increasing, ever-expanding, ever-overflowing happiness in His presence. Oh, beloved, believe God this morning, and He will count you righteous in His sight.